0: I am thrilled to be here. This is a wonderful place. Uh, Though I live close by, I've never been on Sandy Island. And uh, what a neat spot. And so when Bruce invited me, I was glad to have this opportunity to get to know you all. And uh, particularly during this season of your church's life, uh, come in and share some of God's perspective on uh, his plan for unity, even in the midst of pastoral transition. And so God's word speaks to us in all times and all places. And I think this is a very potent time for us to consider this word. Uh, before I dive in, though, I also want to introduce uh, my wife Wendy is here and my oldest daughter Nadia. And I have two more children who will be joining uh, us this afternoon. Uh, my son Seth and daughter Isabel, uh, who both had commitments last night and this morning, but thankfully we're close enough that they can uh, come up today. And so we're glad to be here as a family and look forward to meeting uh, you all a little further. Although I have been warned um, to watch out for you all during the canoe race. Does that get a little heated, I guess? Okay, well, du- duly warned. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, both uh, uh, today, uh, bo- both messages today and tomorrow. 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 will be the uh, area of Scripture we're in. Now, what I said earlier is, uh, is what, uni- what unifies a church in the midst of pastoral transition? You know, leadership transition is nothing new in the church. For thousands of years, uh, the church has experienced God bringing in leaders who had certain giftings and experiences for specific purposes in the life of a local church. And then in time, a leader would transition out. This has happened for generation upon generation in Christ's church. Now, while different leaders are necessary for accomplishing God's purposes in a local church— Leadership transition is not without its challenges. And any church that walks through it recognizes that quickly. Uh, It can be a challenging time. But thankfully, God has given us everything we need, everything we need to walk through these changes, not merely surviving, getting through a season of transition, but actually growing spiritually during a time of pastoral transition. I actually think these are some of the most ripe opportunities for a local church to be reminded that Christ is the head of the church and that we are all members of His body and the opportunity to grow up in Christ during this time of transition. So I want us to consider uh, this weekend um, three different elements that enable God's church to be unified and to grow during a time of leader transition. So three different elements that we see here in 1 Corinthians 1-3. through Uh, that allow Christ's church to remain unified and to grow during leader transition. Uh, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 31. I'm not sure if it'll be up there or not because I think I sent in the wrong scripture. I apologize, all right? So follow along on your uh, on your devices or your Bibles. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, I am so thankful uh, that you have not left us adrift in life uh, to try to figure out for ourselves uh, who you are, uh, how we are to live, how we are to function in your body, But Lord, you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit. So God, I pray this morning that by your word and by your spirit, you would teach us and instruct us. God, I thank you that you are the good shepherd who leads your sheep. So would you lead us, your church, today? God, I pray that you'd help us to become more like you as we take in your word and apply these truths. So please, lead us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at verse 10 there as we started off uh, this reading, Paul is appealing to the Corinthian church. He's finished his introductory comments and he is appealing to the church about a specific problem that they are wrestling with. He says, "I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you." So he's writing to a church in which there are divisions. And This is often the case because the church is filled with sinful people and divisions arise. And so Paul is writing to this church with an appeal. I appeal that you be united and that there be no divisions among you. And then he goes on to highlight kind of four different groups in the church. Maybe there's more, we don't know. But there's four different specific groups in this church around which division has risen. And what's interesting is all of these groups pertain to the issue of a personal preference based on a leadership style. So God has used different leaders in the local church. He's brought through Paul and Apollos and Peter. And during their ministries, people kind of gravitated more towards one or the other. And now people have kind of divided based on those personal preferences. Now, I want to dig a little deeper into what we know of uh, these people, Paul, uh, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus, and kind of understand some of the divisions that have arisen. All right? So we consider uh, the first group, the group one, the group that says, we follow Paul. Now, um, for some in this group, I'm guessing their affinity for Paul was based on their personal relationship to Paul. Um, We know from the book of Acts, that Paul uh, was the church planter, the one who came in, and through his preaching, the Corinthian church was founded. Paul actually references his connection to them further on in chapter four of 1 Corinthians, where he says in verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That He has this parental role in their life spiritually, Because many of them came to Christ under his teaching. They had this deep connection with him, because through Paul, they met Jesus. Um, Acts chapter 18 tells the story of how the church began, that Paul came in and he began to preach in the synagogue, as was his custom, and as often happened, his message was not well received there. So he moved next door to a house next door, and as he preached there, um, that whole household came to faith in Jesus Christ. And over the next year and a half, many others came to faith in Christ. You can imagine what an exciting time it was for this new, young, fledgling church, seeing person after person have their eyes opened to the saving work of Jesus. The family is growing, and they're looking to Paul as their spiritual father, their spiritual leader. Um, I was a church planter uh, before taking this role, before I listened to God's plan for my life, uh, in the town of Alton, New Hampshire. Um, I know how uniquely powerful it is um, to be part of a young church forming and see people coming to Jesus Christ. And some of those people who came to Christ uh, under my ministry there, there is still to this day quite a special connection with those people. Matter of fact, I have to be quite careful to not exert undue influence in that situation because of my special connection with those people. So even today, this kind of thing exists, that those who come to Christ through a spiritual leader have a deep level of connection and affinity for that leader. I'm sure that was the case for some of these people who came to Christ under Paul. But for others, it may not have been their unique uh, relational connection to Paul. It may have been his style of ministry. Um, you know, we know that Paul was a brilliant man. Uh, Paul was very educated. He was a Pharisee. Uh, His Jewish studies were under the chief Jewish instructor, Gamaliel. Paul spoke several languages. He was very intelligent. Uh, He authored the majority of the New Testament letters. Uh, Matter of fact, when he was standing up before uh, Festus, the Roman governor, uh, Festus said to Paul, Paul, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're so smart that I don't even really get what you're saying. Paul, I would say, is the, uh, the Tim Keller or the Ravi Zacharias of his day. He has a great intellect, and he's a wonderful conceptual teacher of theology. And so I'm sure some people really appreciated that style of ministry, while others did not. And so a certain segment of the church really tracked with Paul. That's group one, we follow Paul. Uh, Group two was, I follow Apollos. So this is the Apollos group. Now, we probably know a little bit less about Apollos than we do Paul, but he's a fascinating character. Now, when Paul left uh, the city of Corinth, after ministering there for about a year and a half, uh, he went to the city of Ephesus uh, with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, And in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila met Apollos, who was from Alexandria in Egypt. Now, Apollos was a Jewish man who knew the Scriptures incredibly well. Uh, And he believed in Jesus, but had a very limited understanding uh, matter of fact, he did not understand fully about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Priscilla and Aquila began to disciple him and instruct him further. Uh, and Apollos was well known, not only for his deep knowledge of the Scripture, but for his powerful preaching. He was a fervent preacher. Uh, listen to how he's described in Acts 18, 24-25. It says that he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now if you compare uh, what it says about Apollo's preaching, that he was fervent in spirit, um, he was passionate, he knew the word and spoke the word powerfully, compare that with how Paul describes his own preaching in First Corinthians chapter two verses one to three. Paul says, of himself, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I don't know too many pastors who, when they candidate, want to be known as weak and trembling and in fear. That doesn't come across well, generally. So you have Apollos, this man fervent in spirit, competent in the Scriptures, and Paul, who in Corinth came across weak and trembling and in fear. Of the two, it would have been said that Apollos was the more powerful preacher. And so for some, they really appreciated the powerful preaching of Apollos. When we hear him explain the Scriptures, we are stirred. And so God used Apollos in his preaching in uh, the Corinthian church, and so therefore many people tracked with him as their model of what a leader should be. Then we have group three, the I follow Cephas, or I follow Peter group. Now, this group may have felt more connection to Peter because Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. Um, He was actually leader of the original 12. Now, we think of Paul today as being the big name, the big figure, but that was not the case for the early church. At this time, Paul was more of an outsider. Um, He was the one who had persecuted the church. People still were unsure about him. Peter had pedigree, for Peter had walked with Jesus. So they looked to Peter as having the the bigger name in the early church. And so for some people, that mattered. We can trust him, his pedigree, his resume. Uh, Others, it may not have been his pedigree. It may have been his personality. You know, when you read through the, the gospel accounts, Peter is quite an impulsive, impetuous sort, and for some people, uh, that comes across as being more authentic or spiritual. And look how in the moment Peter is, how he responds to the Holy Spirit, and you know, we, we track with him. Um, or, or others, it was his style of teaching. Peter was a very down-to-earth, application-oriented teacher. I believe right now you're going through 1 uh, Peter on Sunday mornings. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, and so so you're getting a first-hand look at this. First Peter is a wonderfully um, practical book about how to follow Jesus Christ in the midst of a world in a culture that doesn't receive, receive him well. Very practical teaching on how to do this. Matter of fact, at the end of the book of First Peter, Peter himself says about Paul's teaching that it's kind of hard to understand. And I think he's kind of saying, "I'm not sure I get all of that, but you know, you can listen to my practical teaching here." And so he's very down-to-earth in what he has to say, and some people appreciated that style of teaching. So you have the I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter group, and then we have the last group, I follow Christ. Now, on one hand, this is the right theological answer, right? I mean, Christ is the head of the church. This group is correct in this theological answer. But the way this group is listed as one of the divided groups makes us realize, though they were correct in theology, they were wrong in practice. And it's very humbling for us to realize that even having the right theological answers, we can still go wrong in our practice. Sometimes the right theology can lead us to a feeling of superiority. And so instead of leading us to greater unity, it can actually lead to division. And the church history is filled of accounts of people who did have correct theology and still lived divided, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can have all the answers, all the understanding, all the knowledge, but without love, the right answers are nothing. And so Paul is addressing even this group that says, I follow Christ, saying, if you're not living united, something's off. Something's off. So this is Paul's appeal, his call to unity. And we have to, first of all, simply recognize the fact that as human beings, we always have a tendency to gravitate to certain spiritual leaders. And we'll have different preferences because we're different people. And our preferences can cause division, but they don't need to. So Paul's call is not for everyone to have the same preferences. That would be uniformity. His call is that despite our different preferences, to have unity. So even though we gravitate towards Paul or Apollos or Peter, we all are to be united under Christ. So this is Paul addressing the divisions that exist in the church, and then a call to have unity in the midst of these different preferences. So the big question for us to consider this morning is: how can we have unity when different personal preferences exist? How can we still have unity when different personal preferences exist, especially around something as significant as spiritual leadership? How can we be unified? Too often during times of pastoral transition, personal preferences can cause deep division in the life of a different church, where people wonder, boy, I would like to have a leader of this style or that style. So how can you have unity in the midst of different preferences? Well, in verses 17 and 18, we see Paul begin to shift from addressing the different groups to giving the foundation for our unity. Paul says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What Paul does is he reminds the Corinthian church about the message of the cross being the foundation for their unity. And not only the foundation, the means by which they entered the family of God, but it is the fuel by which their unity is maintained. That the cross of Christ is the basis of our unity. And Paul goes on to explain that. But he begins by saying, though it is the most powerful uniting factor we have, it is easily disregarded or overlooked. Matter of fact, he says, the surrounding world uh, looks at the cross of Christ as foolishness, as folly, as a scandal. It, It does not see the cross of Christ as being the power that it is, but instead it is trivialized or looked down upon. And the reason he brings this up is not because he's addressing the world, it's because he's saying to the church, you're acting like the world. That the world thinks little of the cross of Christ, but the Corinthian church had begun to think little of the cross of Christ. Their unity or their lack of unity revealed that they had kind of moved past it. The cross had got them into the family, but now worldly principles were at play in the Corinthian church. And these worldly principles were causing division. So Paul is recalibrating them to the foundation of the cross of Christ for their unity. So I want to consider two things about the message of the cross. Uh, first is, what is the message of the cross, and how does it unify? And then secondly, how, how can we live based on that? Uh, what is the message of the cross and how does it unify? Well, first of all, the message of the cross reveals the true problem in our world. The message of the cross is about the sin problem we all have. And Paul goes on to show how there were other worldviews who saw the source of our problem as being different than what the cross reveals. And he specifically highlights the Greek worldview and the Jewish worldview. Very different worldviews, and both of them made little of the cross. Now, he said in the Greek worldview, the Greek worldview saw the problem of the world as being primarily a problem of knowledge and a problem of culture, knowledge and culture. The Greeks were incredibly civilized. Uh, They valued education. They valued culture. They valued performance. They had wonderful cities, great architecture, great entertainment. So for them, the problem with the barbarian world is they weren't cultured enough. If education could flourish, if civilization would grow, the problems of the world could be eradicated. That's the Greek worldview. If we could get this world cultured, our problems would be solved. You can understand why a poor Jewish rabbi who suffered a gruesome death as a criminal would be seen as foolish in a Greek mind for being the power of the world, to being the power to solve the problems of the world. In the Greek way of thinking, the cross of Christ, the message of the cross, was foolish for actually being able to solve the real problems of the world. The real problems of the world. Now, the Jewish worldview is quite different than the Greek worldview. The Jewish worldview certainly saw that the problem of the world had to do with that God's laws were not being obeyed. They believed what the Scriptures reveal, that there is a God who has made this world. There's a way that we are to live, and it's according to His law. But here's where the cross of Christ was seen as foolishness to them. The cross of Christ was seen as powerlessness. In the Jewish worldview, the problem was that God's laws were not being lived out by those in power. The Jews, at this point, not in power. The Romans, the Greeks, all these other civilizations had the power in that day. And the thought was, if we had the power, if the right ruler had the political power, the problems would be solved. This is why Christ was missed by so many Jewish people, because they were looking for a worldly, powerful leader to implement God's laws. And so they see the cross of Christ As a scandal, how could a crucified Messiah solve the real problems of the world? We need a military man to solve the real problems to put us in power. But the cross of Christ is the power of God. And and Paul reveals that it is the cross of Christ and the cross of Christ alone that can solve the problem of division that has plagued our world all along. This world longs for unity. This world longs to live at peace, and then civilization after civilization, age after age, finds itself at odds with one another. And the Greek worldview that valued culture and education, the Jewish worldview that valued power, did not have the answers to bring about true unity. But the cross of Christ does. How so? How so? Well, first of all, The cross of Christ unifies us in the problem. The cross of Christ does not say, this is the way for cultured people or this is the way for a certain ethnicity. The cross of the Christ says, this is the one way by which all humanity must come. And the problem in our world is not just out there with that group or that group. It is in us all. That the problem is sin and Romans 3:23 says, "We all have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God." So we're unified in that we can't say, "He's the problem, she's the problem, they're the problem." We have to say, "We're the problem if we agree with the cross." It's kind of like this. Um, any of you here, uh, and any of you track athletes? A few of you. OK. Does anyone compete? Uh, in the long jump. Any long jumpers? All right, excellent. we got some long jumpers. So let's say we were to have a competition. You and me, all right? You and me, we're going to have a long jumping competition. Do you think you can jump farther than me? You're not sure? You know what? I think you probably could. I, that, I'm, I'm, I'm betting on you, all right? <laughs> so let's say we were to line up at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And we're going to jump and see who can go farther, all right? At the edge of the Grand Canyon. I'm guessing she could jump a little bit farther than me. But what does it matter, right? <laughs> Neither one of us can jump across the Grand Canyon. We're both going down. And this is what happens in life. is Yes, there are some people who are morally jumping a little farther than others. But none of us can cross the chasm that exists. See, God says every single one of us has fallen short of the standard God calls us to, a a perfect love for Him, love for for others. And all of us fall short, and we spend our time comparing ourselves with other people who are falling short. I can jump a little further than them. They're more of the problem than me. And Scripture says, oh, we're looking at the wrong standard. The standard is God and His perfect righteousness. And all of us have fallen short of what God calls us to. And so the problem is universal. It's a wonderfully humbling thing to realize that we're all part of the problem. And we're not as worried about pointing out the problems in others, but in looking for the only solution that can get us across the canyon. So the cross of Christ says that none of us can make the leap, but Christ has. And so we're unified in the problem, and we're unified in the, in, the, in the solution. The cross reveals God's power to save, and we can be united in His work. And we need to see this. Uh, some of the songs I so appreciated that we sang earlier, those songs helped us to, to really meditate upon the cross, what Christ did for us in the cross, because the cross is power. It is wisdom. And when our focus is the cross, some of the things that divide us begin to sink away. Because we're focused upon this solution that Christ has done for us. And so I want to remind you again of how powerful the cross is, how wise the cross is, and how when our focus is the message of the cross, we find ourselves unified despite our differences, despite the fact that we may have different cultural backgrounds, despite the fact that we may have different personal preferences for leaders. Despite our distinctions and our differences, we are united in the solution of Christ. First of all, the cross is powerful and it is wise because the cross rescues us from the penalty of our sin. The cross and the cross alone rescues us from the penalty of our sin. Now, here's where the jumping across the canyon metaphor breaks down, Um, It's not just that we can't make the leap, it's that there's a punishment because we can't, that there's a cost for our sin. And that's a hard, hard message for us to accept, but it's true. You know, it's kind of like this. Um, Everything in life has a cost to it. Well, let's say, for instance, uh, I come to your house to watch the Patriots game tomorrow night. Any Patriots fans here? All right. It's a good crowd. When I travel to Connecticut, you know, it was a little closer to New York. I have to moderate my sports analogies. But Boston, we're good. Uh, let's say I come to watch the Patriots at your house. And I get so into the game, you know, that I'm throwing uh, my dish around. And it slips out of my hand and, and breaks your TV. Right in the middle of the game, there's a problem. You have a TV that's broken. Now, you could mercifully say, no problem, Sam. I forgive you and I would be grateful for that. But there's still a problem. You still have a broken TV. And if you're going to watch TV again, watch the next Patriots game, somebody has got to pay for the broken TV. There's a cost there because something was broken. Now, you could hold me to it and say, you broke it, you need to pay for it. Or you could say, I'll pay for it. That in the cross of Christ, our sin was paid for. There was a payment for sin on the cross of Christ, and it wasn't just for my sin, it wasn't just for your sin, the payment was enough for all sin, and so Christ has said, I will pay the cost for the sin. God has rescued us from the penalty, the cost of our sin, by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Secondly, the cross is powerful, because on the cross, God has broken the power of sin. It wasn't only that Jesus took the penalty, Um, in some ways, while that would be wonderful news, it would still be discouraging because we would still be stuck in our sin. Forgiven, but continuing the same patterns. And so God has not only forgiven the debt we owe, He's making it possible to live differently. That the cross is power so that we can live new lives. See, sin is not just bad choices that we make. Sin also is entrapment. It is slavery. That we get stuck under the power of sin. The New Testament describes sin as a power. And when Christ died on the cross, there was a triumph, that Christ was victorious over the power of sin. And what that does is it makes it possible for us to live differently. Now, this side of heaven, we are still going to be on a learning curve, by the power of the Holy Spirit, learning to live new lives following Jesus Christ. But new lives are possible. And we can live united because we are all growing together to become like Jesus Christ. So sin is broken. The power of sin is broken because of the cross of Christ. We can't conquer sin. Christ has. And he extends his victory to us. The third way the message of the cross is powerful is that the power of the cross gives us a new pattern life. That it wasn't just that Christ died on a cross. He says, if you're going to follow me, I have a cross for you too. If anyone will come after me, they must deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. And this isn't meant to be um, a hazing project from Jesus. Are you worthy enough? You know, will will you do enough? What he's saying is the cross is the pattern of true life. The cross is the pattern of true life. If you want unity, there's no way to it except through a cross. You see, we can't live unified if we won't lay our lives down. This world is not unified because we all cling to our rights and our preferences. We all want our own way, and we can't live unified with one another. Peace is not possible when everyone insists on their own way. But Christ said, if anyone would come after me, there's a new way. There's a way of taking up your cross, of dying to selfish preference to follow Jesus Christ. You make it possible to lay your life down for others good and God's glory. And so the cross becomes the pattern of life for Christian community. We're deferring to one another, submitting to one another, looking for one another's good. And the cross shows us that it worked for Jesus, he laid his life down and look at the glory that resulted. That pattern works for us too. Now, Christ's cross is unique in that it breaks the power of sin. Our sacrifice does not break the pattern, the power of sin. Only Christ does that. But we have to follow in the pattern because He has made it possible. So the cross is powerful in that it gives us a new pattern for life. And then lastly, the cross is powerful in that it guarantees that the presence of sin will be removed forever. The cross is our guarantee about the future. And we long for a day, I long for a day, when there is no more sickness, there is no more suffering, there is no more death. I'm sure some of you right now are going through difficulty, whether it's yourself personally, or a friend, or a family member, and you long for the day when that kind of suffering is no more. Well, the reason that suffering exists is because sin still does. But the promise of the Scriptures is that one day, sin will not. That when Christ returns, He will remove even the presence of sin, and there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death. And the cross is the guarantee, because if Jesus was willing to shed His own blood, if He was willing to pay that high of a cost, He's not going to fall short on delivering what the cross promises. There was a reason He gave His life, and it was to defeat sin. It was to bring us into His family. It was to wash us and to cleanse us and to prepare a whole new day when the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we know the end of the story, and the cross guarantees it. The price has already been paid. And so when we're tempted to be discouraged about the suffering that still exists, the division we still see, we need to look to the cross and remind ourselves that that will not be the case forever. Christ guarantees it. So as you go through this time of transition in the life of your local church, I want to remind you about how powerful the cross is as your foundation. You're going to have lots of questions that you need to ask about how God is leading this church, um, who will be the the pastor God is calling. And those are important questions to consider. They really are, but not the most important question. The most important question you can be asking during this season is not about your future pastor. It's about your current church. The question is, are you grounded in the message of the cross? Are you growing in the message of the cross? Are you unified in the message of the cross? If you are, you have no reason to fear pastoral transition. Uh, different preferences will come to light, but they will not divide you. They'll be used by God instead to mature you. And you're going to be a witness to the world, a witness to the world that longs for unity, but despite all of its talk about unity, lives more divided than ever. And so when the church can live unified, even in the midst of having different preferences, it is a sign to the world that Christ is there in that church. For it's the cross of Christ alone that brings about the unity that we long for. Um, I'd like us to finish with a song, and I'm going to close in prayer while the, uh, while the worship team comes up. And then uh, next session, we're going to consider a second element uh, for a reason we have to have unity in Christ, even during a time of pastoral transition. So why don't you all stand, and I'll close in prayer while the team comes up. Lord, we are so thankful uh, for your word and how it points us to the truth of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for this message, the message of the cross. That Jesus, you have paid for our sin and you have paid in full. We sang it earlier, it is finished. And we are so thankful that is the case. And Lord, we are thankful that not only have you paid for our sin, but you've broken the power of sin. That God, you've made it possible for us to live new lives no longer under sin's sway. And Lord, I thank you that you've also laid out a new pattern for life. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes in our sinfulness. We don't see this pattern as good, as desirable. Uh, Lord, we see the cross only as instruments of death. But God, help us today to see the cross actually as the gateway to resurrection. Help us to see the cross as means of serving, and means of loving, and the path to unity. And God, I pray that you'd help us to put our full confidence in your cross, that you promise there will be a day when there will be no more sin and no more suffering. And we thank you for this hope that we have. So Lord, we bless you for what you've done for us. We pray that you continue to shape us and form us to live more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.